we're gone full circle. And now the exciting thing is now that technology can be back with us, how should we deal with it? And at least in modern history, this is unprecedented because there is no priestly class of software engineers or operations researchers or those kinds of or mathematicians in between us, nothing mediating. I think that's the really, really cool thing here that educators and students all have to figure out. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited about the conversations we get to have with people doing really incredible things in the world today. And um, actually, today, we get to talk about um, AI, um, something that everybody is chattering about in the world. There's a lot of confusion about what it is, what it isn't, about what it holds for our futures, what it means to the world of education and for the world of work. And we have um, a couple of folks um, on today um, that we will be able to have this conversation about, specifically about a question is the chief AI officer part of our future? As our kids may be the first generation ever to aspire to this new role. So on this particular episode, we're going to explore how to help them and us prepare for that particular brave new world. And joining us for this conversation is Sanjay uh, Sagal, who is the executive director for affiliates and research engagement at Sanford Institute for Computational and Mathematical Engineering, or ICME. That is a mouthful, um, Sanjay. Oh, welcome mouthful, to the program. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Um, we appreciate you being here um, very much. And joining uh, Sanjay is Jasmine Degaya, who is a global product strategy and technology executive in banking and financial services. And um, you may recognize that name because Jasmine has been on the program several times before. She is very innovative in the world of business and industry. She meets incredible people along the way. And as a result of that, she brings amazing topics and people to this program. So Jasmine, welcome to the program. Thank you, Annalise. As always, pleasure to be here. So Jasmine, I actually want to start with you. So, you know, it's it's really interesting when we think about the rate and pace of change that's happening in the world. And as somebody who is working really sort of in the space of customer interfaces in a really, really dynamic industry in the world of banking and finance, you sort of spend an awful lot of time sort of in the world where people are experiencing things very differently and innovation is changing pretty rapidly. So what's your interest in this topic? Because I love the fact that you brought this forward. And I think that you had some pretty specific sort of things in mind as you were thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, all the buzz these days certainly is around the cutting edge technology that's happening, particularly in the world of generative AI. Um, I think when ChatGPT came on the scene, it really 
awoke and you know a lot of a lot of uh, interest in the topic and not only the interest because AI has been around for some time now mm-hmm. but rather sort of the democratization of those capabilities so it's not simply in the hands of a few large organizations but that people can really um, access it play around with this see what's you know what the capabilities are and I think it's really um, generated a lot of interest and excitement and particularly organizations in various industries are now thinking about how do we how do we capitalize on this how do we use this capability and also how do we apply appropriate guardrails around it um and so that's why as we think about this this role potentially of a chief AI officer something mm-hmm. that never existed before, Um, But is this something that we'll start to see in the future? Because not only do you need the technologists and the data scientists and folks with expertise in AIML, but you also need strategists and people who can think about how do you use this new capability, these new technologies in a really um, meaningful way to generate value for organizations. And I think the third piece of that is what um, guardrails are you going to put around that? So having someone that has a, a view around what is our policy, mm-hmm. what are our um, values as an organization as it relates to ethics and bias and um, things that we will use AI for and things that we absolutely will not use AI for because that's not part of our um, our DNA or our values um, as an organization. I think this varies you know, by organization mm-hmm. um, and it's something that each company needs to address and think about deeply um, in terms of how they want to um, want to address them. And there's also a societal question too, right? Just, and this goes, um, relates to things way more than just, just AI, but we, we, you know, anytime we talk about new innovations and, and um, new, new opportunities or technologies out there, just because we can, doesn't mean we should. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's all of those elements, I think that, that, that will make their ways into this conversation as well. So I appreciate that very, very much. Sanjay, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of AI being this new thing, because, you know, uh, Jasmine alluded to it and you and I, in our previous conversation, there's, there's nothing new about this or about the science of this, about the, there's been a long-term sort of trend work in this space. What's new is the public sort of has access in ways maybe they didn't realize they've had before, but in, in your work, this has been around for a while. This has been around for a while. Exactly right. I mean, so if you if you if you look at all the entire history of engineering, mm-hmm. it has been based on um, insights gained from mathematics. If you look at the entire history of um, computation, that was gained and that that came about by all kinds of discoveries in mathematics that allowed computation to work. Now, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on there too, like electrical engineering and so on and so forth. So I think you're absolutely right that what is really, truly new, and Jasmine alluded to this when she talked about democratization, but it's really about access, right? Like you just said, it's uh, anybody, um, um, uh, a sixth grader can go there and say, write me an essay about Moby Dick. And there you go. There's an essay, you know, they can say 800 to 1000 word essay on uh, whether Moby Dick was a winner in life or something along those lines. And it will write something. That has not been the case uh, when um, I was doing 
my research uh, in graduate school. Jasmine was doing her work in graduate school. Uh, that was not the case. Uh, we were using fairly esoteric tools to fairly esoteric ends. So if you're working in HR or you're working in supply chains or you're working in retail, you have been using many of the tools that now people are conversant with, which are fairly mathematical. And now suddenly we get to see the fruits of this. So it's there's been an inflection point for sure. Inflection point has been in usage uh, and adoption rather than in technology itself. Mm-hmm. So, and either one of you can answer this question for me because, you know, I'm wondering if part of what the public's fascination with this, and it is, it is, it is everywhere as we talked about, right? You know, the, the emergence of chat GPT, the public is equating AI with, with that, not understanding the breadth and depth of what this technology really is and how long it's been emerging and the fact that we've been using it in, in many forms for, for, for many years. Um, actually, but it's it's a, not just an access piece. It's also um, it's an image component to some extent now, right? There's this massive marketing element to this that I think, in, in part, because the the interface maybe that's the way to think about. It. There's an interface for it now that makes it more publicly accessible, and because of this iteration, the technological innovations of the interface itself. Now suddenly it becomes this thing that um, can be part of everybody's sort of experience. Right back to you know writing an essay about Moby Dick, right? That we didn't have before. So what or how I guess as we sort of think about that and the broad public application of this, does that become sort of a a game changer? Not just in individual industries, but I'm really sort of thinking about people's everyday experience. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in there and then uh Sanjay feel free to chime in as well, but I think there we're seeing people learning how they can use this in their everyday lives and um some people are using it for more personal assistance um essentially and I think that will be a a path that we certainly see. Um I think we are also seeing people use it a lot for um, research, for aggregating information, for um, streamlining tasks uh, that can be done. And I think along that vein, and, and Annalise will probably go there as well, there are applications for teachers and educators to use it in a in a cohesive way to make their everyday lives a little bit easier as well. Um, but I think we'll, we'll continue to see the applications of the capabilities evolve as more and more people are playing with it and experimenting and trying new things. Um, and it's going to continue to learn and grow and, you know, all of the AI capabilities that are out there. It'll be an evolution. Right, right, right. So, so here is another way of looking at it. Uh, and I want to go back to something that you just talked about and sort of underline it. When the Industrial Revolution came about, uh, we we had suddenly a new interface to technology. Before that, we didn't. And after that, let's say the steam engine or the cotton gin or any of the, uh, any of the, um, and then later electricity. These are all things that became, that took technology away from us because an ordinary person could no longer interact. The user interface was not there so much, right? I mean, it was a mechanical interface, but it was an interface for the cognoscenti. It was an interface for people highly trained. Right? Then when computing came about much later, um, let's say 
1950s, let's say roughly, then the interface became punch cards and then keyboards and monitors and programming languages and so on and so forth. Before all of this, we were in touch with technology pretty much. Uh, if you if you go to uh, my grandmother's village in the Himalayas, they were using the same technology for hundreds and hundreds of years to do agriculture. Nothing really new was happening there. Everybody understood how to work a plow, how to work bullocks, and so on and so forth. We went away from that. And now with things like large language models, we are back to interacting with technology in a way that you and I and anybody else can understand. So the dramatic shift has been in the user interface, which has brought technology back to us. And this is just the start because right now you can work with chat GPT and you can ask it to write an essay, but you could very, very easily start getting it to do much much more complex things, buy you tickets reliably mm-hmm. right now. Right. <laughs> I'm sure you've read, you, you can't really do those fact-based things uh, so much. We're gone full circle. And now the exciting thing is, now that technology can be back with us, how should we deal with it? And at least in modern history, this is unprecedented because there is no priestly class of software engineers or operations researchers or those kinds of, or mathematicians in between us, nothing mediating. So I think that's the really, really cool thing here that educators and students all have to figure out. I agree. And Sanjay, if I could add to that, I think also the, the with the UI making this accessible to people, people can now interact directly. But at the same time, we have to also maintain a level of critical thinking to say, what, is there explainability behind what's happening here? Is there transparency so that people have a level of insight into how those, you know, those results are being being provided um, as well? So I think it's it's an opportunity for us also to keep asking those questions and uh, and make sure that the right information is is behind the scenes. Right. So my, my view is that the emergence of these new technologies, which sort of disintermediate the arcane technical layer, could actually be uh, a way to spotlight humanities. Because the things that you're talking about are actually not just do X or do Y, but why do we want to do those things? Is it right to do those things? And that's, engineering doesn't tell us that stuff, right? And humanities tell us that stuff. So if I'm looking at it from an educator's point of view, I think this is a really, really exciting time because now we don't have to spend perhaps a lot of time talking about, oh, this is how you open an Excel spreadsheet or anything, and this is how the formulas work. You just do it. So that gives you uh, really the opportunity to start thinking about should you do it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's 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 very exciting. Yeah, I would agree. I I find it incredibly exciting. And it is really interesting because in our work at PASS, we spend an awful lot of time obviously thinking about and interacting inside of that K-12 space very broadly. Right. And sometimes that's by working with individual schools or with teachers trying to wrestle with how they how they sort of bring their own practice into a very now and effective and engaging sort of space for their students. 
Um, you know, students are fully immersed in technology, almost all of them, um, in and around the world, right, um, it, to varying degrees. But but there's this natural curiosity that young people have about new and exciting things, right? And technology has always been one of those elements, right? Even going all the way back to back to your example of the steam engine, right? So there, it was a fascination because it was different. It was unique. And so kids gravitate towards these things that, that, that are new. And schools struggle, honestly, um, to keep up with the interest of their students um, in a world that's changing so rapidly. And technology has definitely um, fed that. And so a lot of that conversation in that space is has really been around, you know, as as K-12, as educators, should we really be afraid of this technology? And should we be concerned about all of the things that it might be able to do for students, um, as opposed to what students could learn from being able to embrace the technology and, you know, trying to figure all of those elements, those components out. And so we we talk an awful lot about the fact that it's not going anywhere. It's not going away, right? So stop banning it. Stop passing laws um, that says we can't have chat GPT being utilized by our students because they're going to use it anyway and they're going to find a workaround. So let's just be real here. But the other piece of it is it's an incredible tool. It's an incredible technology that, to Jasmine's point, we, we it gives us a, a foundational component by which to talk about humanity and the role of, of human and human interactions with technology in the world in ways that we, we honestly, we haven't um, for quite a long time. So it's an interesting piece in that space. And what I wonder about is sort of not just the how K-12 is going to be utilizing these technologies are thinking about it from an adaptability piece, but more importantly, back to the, the question that we started with, how does K-12 utilize the fact that this, this is here, it's coming as a mechanism by which we change the way we think about preparing students for the future? I mean, ultimately, for example, Sanjay, you know, you've got these kids that show up, um, you know, in, in, your, in your program, but how are they going to be prepared to get there? Right. If you think about the work that you do at Stanford um, and the, the really complex computational mathematical um, variety of stuff, I have no idea the breadth and depth of what you're working on, or even Jasmine, the work um, in her space in the financial industry, just the back end systems, the systems upon systems that I know that Jasmine interacts with um, and is part of the innovation team that's thinking about those. And it's incredibly complex. And yet, I think in K-12, we're not necessarily thinking that far ahead as it relates to the way we prep the next future um, of our workforce in that space. And so I'm super curious from both of you, if you were to sort of step back and advise and advise a, a, a school, whether they be, you know, your own kids or the kids next door, um, you know, and you're sort of thinking about that, what would you, what would you tell our educators as it relates to how you want to think about this potential of this technology and the in, the interface that it has on the way they think about what's needed next for our kids in the world. Yeah. I think you just got to Jasmine. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, yeah, I would say, first of all, and I think you, you posed a really good question, Annalise, which is, how should people think about it, the mindset behind um, uh, engaging with this technology? And I think coming at it from a place of optimism and I'm going to embrace this technology with a level of appropriate caution um, is it feels to me like the right balance as opposed to fear or I'm going to completely lock this down and and say you know no one can use this I think that would be the first thing the second is thinking about it as a tool 
Um, right? Like any other tools that are out there, if you think about um, even when people started using the calculator, and I remember seeing uh, like photos of people protesting the use of calculators in the classroom, right? Um, and if we think about it as a tool that can enable students to then use their brain power for more elevated um, uh, functions and AI becomes a tool to to help them do more. That's a very different mindset than um, you know the AI is going to replace you or is going to you know threaten you in some way. Um, and I think the the third thing I would say is just instilling in students this notion of um, uh, continually educating themselves and also having a level of critical thinking around that in the same way that we, um, uh, guide students in critical thinking around digital literacy, there should be critical thinking around your engagement with AI and a view of, you know, this is a, this is going to be a constantly and rapidly evolving space and, um, having people embrace that, um, and really, uh, have the mindset to be a, a continuous learner in the area, I think, are, are kind of foundational things that, that educators can do. Right. I, so, so my view is somewhat actually fairly similar to uh, Jasmine's. Um, if, if you think about schools as an institution, um, it's one of the oldest living institutions that we have around, right? And um, institutions don't stick around um, in the form, I mean, if we think of the schools that any of us went to and the schools that are now um, in existence, uh, K through 12 or universities, let's say universities, those are easier to deal with. So we have modern universities from around the 11th or 12th century in Europe, right? And they're more or less, Oxford is more or less Oxford <laughs> uh, since then, right? So the education business, in my view, is a little resistant to change. It does not change very easily, right? I'm gonna so, echo that, so I'll just have you right there and say, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so that's, that's a feature. That's a feature that has in part contributed, I think, to their longevity. Okay, so now Jasmine talks about, you know, uh, have this mindset of learning uh, and, uh, uh, and changing and adapting and so on and so forth. Yes, of course, all three of us, I'm sure, are in violent agreement on that issue. Um, the problem is, how do you do it when a teacher has been teaching for 25 years? In the 26th year, chat GPT makes an appearance. How does this happen? How, how do they decide now? Oh, <laughs> now uh, it's clear that if I give them a take-home test or possibly even a classroom test, they're going to be using chat GPT to uh, formulate their answers. This makes things very, very interesting. But change in this particular case has to be done. I think we have to look at these technologies as enabling technologies, like Jasmine said, and start figuring out how do we use these things. So Something like ChatGPT. Uh, I, I remember in uh, when the pandemic came about, I was uh, teaching at that point uh, at UC Davis, and I was doing in-class, general, regular classes, and we had to go to Zoom. And what I discovered was that there were many things that I could do way better on Zoom than I could do in class. A great example, simple example being breakouts. I could send students out into breakouts like this. And, and that was fantastic because then I went back and I hybridized my classes in order to have classes where we did a lot of breakouts. 
or a lot more of the activity in breakouts. And teachers are going to have to think about, okay, how do we use chat GPT in an interesting way? Um, and maybe live in the classroom. Okay, uh, what prompts are you going to give chat GPT to come up with this kind of an analysis? Now let's compare these analysis. We would have had to go home, come back the following week, then the uh, things get graded. You can have an auto grader of whatever chat GPT gave you and then figure out which is the better view of, uh, of Ahab um, between the 17 different views that we got in, in the classroom, right? So this is actually very, very exciting. But yes, as Jasmine says, we got to have the mindset that we are going to use these things rather than go, oh my gosh, this is, you know, sort of, Upsetting my lesson planning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's our, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Admitted, and even yeah. from a lesson planning perspective, if I think teachers embrace it. Mm -hmm. There are things they can use. You, they could use ChatGPT or um, generative AI to create differentiated lesson plans, to create, um, you know, have it help them create general templates for newsletters, the things that they do on a repetitive basis that they need to engage with students on, um, you know, or give me a list of books about women scientists for third graders, you know, things that can help them um, be better, better educators as well, directly. And, and free of time and all of those sorts of things, right? And, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me as I have these conversations with our school partners is, um, is getting folks to recognize that this is an incredible opportunity to learn to ask a different set of questions, right? I mean, the reality of it is, yes, you know, the students are going to go home and they are going to use chat GPT. And I hate to tell you this, but prior to this showing up, they were going home and they were Googling it, right? There's not that much difference, right? So there's really not this, this great sort of, um, you know, change that's happened. I said, but, but the opportunity here is just assume they're all using it. Right. And ask a different set of questions. Assume they are going to go ask chat GPD to provide them with three examples of X, Y, or Z, and now ask them to analyze the results of that instead. Right. And actually it's deeper level um, thinking and critical skills that you can get to a lot faster by recognizing that all this is going to be going on. And so in, in terms of sort of that, that broader opportunity um, as it relates to the work that can happen in the classroom. But sometimes, um, you know, Sanjay, you, you, you pointed out, right, sometimes it's really, really difficult because I've been doing this for 25 years and, and suddenly now you have a different expectation of me. And it's a tough space to, to be in, but it's pervasive and it's absolutely not going, going, going away. Um, and um, in terms of the way that folks can sort of think about that. You know, the other thing that's really interesting to me about this conversation is, you know, 10 years ago, I remember everybody yakking about the fact that we were automating so many jobs, right? All these robots were coming, coming, coming to our workplace and they were doing all the jobs that, that I've been doing, you know, for my whole career and that all these people were going to lose their jobs because the robots were going to do our jobs. Well, none of that actually materialized. Some jobs did go away. Lots of jobs became, came, um, you know, different jobs or jobs were, were being iterated because of those technological shifts and employees had to be skilled to do other things. Um, but jobs didn't actually go away. Actually, we, we have, we have more jobs than ever before. And so, um, 
I wonder if there's there's a similar sort of comparison to the way that people are thinking about or the fear that's being driven um, for lots of folks as it relates to AI um, and some of the ways that we're thinking about career of the future. You know, again, back to this idea, you know, what are these jobs going to look like? Um, you know, what 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 is the role that folks are going to have in the careers that are tied to AI? You know, so much of it's going to be on the programming side, um, but there's there's way more to it than that. I think jobs that are largely repetitive and um, uh, and possibly, I mean, let's say uh, a postal carrier job. Okay, a postal carrier. I mean, it's it's a part of all our childhoods, still there today. It's not clear to me that there is a lot of exception management that has to be done as a postal carrier. You mostly do the same thing. Every day, every day, every day, every day, and um, I think that job is ripe for automation. So a lot of jobs that fall into where the um, uh, the consequences of failure are not huge. So you might think, for example, an air traffic controller's job. In a certain sense, an air traffic controller's job could be considered. You know, you're keeping the Pushing ten as the uh, statement uh, as a, as a as a title of that movie was right. Uh, you're you're putting these planes from um, stopping them from um, getting into each other's way. Uh, but the consequences of error are very very big. So so that job may be a little more difficult to automate. Uh, we are all familiar with the autopilot on Teslas, right? I mean, and and, and the consequences of that. So I think jobs that are relatively straightforward to automate where the the downside consequences are not huge are going to be automated. So I don't think there is any way around that. Knowledge industry jobs, the kinds of job that, for, for instance, Jasmine is doing in her bank, that is going to be much harder to automate. And so the nature of work is going to shift more in favor of knowledge industries. There is just no way around that. Those jobs are harder to automate. And so whether the total number of jobs goes up or down, my guess is it is going to go down because leverage increases in knowledge industries. You have much more impact. Just Jasmine determines the fate of hundreds, thousands of people's jobs that that's what happens i think so i think there is going to be disruption as industrialized brought about disruption um that's that's just going to happen more so i don't think we can we can get away from that i think what we have to get away from or, or get towards rather excuse me is trying to figure out what are the jobs that people will be doing and how they should be trained to do those jobs right and that's where I think uh, the chief uh, AI officer thing comes about because that's like, okay, that could be one North Star that a lot of people could be pointing towards. And how should schools, how should colleges mm -hmm. and universities be training? That is going to be a challenge. It's mm -hmm. just going to be a challenge for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Jasmine, I'm curious. So how does your industry, how, how, do you, how does your company think about this? So I think all companies, um, not only in, in the banking and financial services industry, but are very actively thinking about what is the impact of AI um, going to be on our organization. And I think where we will see 
um, the opportunities. I think there absolutely will be disruption, as Sanjay mentioned, for sure. But where there are also equal opportunities is around net new um, roles that will be created. There will be a huge demand for people with uh, expertise in modeling, in data science, in um, in technology. And it's not just the AI um, capabilities that you build, but then you need to productionalize it. So you still need software engineers. You need technologists um, who can produce robust, high-quality um, capabilities across, across your organization. So I think those roles will increase um, and you will have greater needs for those. But I think also, as we've talked about earlier, there will be a need for the strategists and people who can think about products and how you create value from these capabilities. And those are, to, to Sunday's point as well, like really knowledge workers, people who can be um, creative and think about the future and the opportunities um, that can be generated as a result of the, the technology that we have. And I think really being proactive in training the next generation in thinking that way, um, as opposed to kind of, you know, historically uh, kind of a, a more rote educational process, right, where you memorize, you you rinse and repeat. And we've moved away from that. And I think we'll see a continual, you know, greater move away from that to one that is really built around um, uh, creativity and innovation and transformation and new ideas. Um, and so I, th I think it's going to be a, an evolution. And right now, at this point in time, the whole world is figuring this out. And so it's a it's an opportunity area, I think, for for kids that are in the K-12 uh, space and beyond to really embrace it because everybody's figuring it out. And those who um, those who take that mindset to let me be at the forefront of this, I think the sky's the limit for them. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Ab ab absolutely. You know, Sanjay, I'm really curious um, as we get ready to sort of wrap this conversation um, from your sort of perspective, sort of in the post-secondary sort of research space, what, if any, and, and maybe the, we don't have an answer to this yet, but I'm I'm super curious sort of on the flip side of what Jasmine was just talking about, sort of from the global policy sort of aspect what do what what are you seeing across the research world right now as it relates to the global policy um, issues or implications tied to the work that's happening um, certainly in the in the US um, we do have a global audience that listens and certainly in the US we are very polarized on lots and lots of things um, right now and it's interesting as we sort of start to see questions around education and AI and technology and lots of these other their elements they they find their way um, into our conversations but I'm really curious about sort of the next sort of level up you know as folks are actually doing the work in this space um, and a lot of that's happening in our big industries and in our post-secondaries um, um, across the globe are really driving that what what is the conversation sort of in that space around some of those bigger global implications? Or is it really just moving technology and innovation forward and we're not so much worried about some of these other pieces? I think there are two, uh, I'd like to point out two big factors. We are, as, as it comes to interacting with the computing uh, through a natural language framework, um, and uh, these generative models, which produce more than you input, uh, we are at the you know millisecond after the Big Bang. 
we don't know what's going on. At this point, we don't have the physics to understand how this is going to expand. I, I, I feel that's a very, very important thing to mention. So uh, while there are lots of pundits who are saying one thing or another, uh, the reality is that right now we don't know what the laws of this particular uh, aspect are going to be. Uh, when, again, I come back to that word that Jasmine used, democratized, right? And you used access. Um, we don't know how that's going to work. So that's item one. Um, we don't have the information. The second thing that I will I will um, point out is that in the academy, I feel there is a heightened awareness of the what um, are often called fat tails or heavy tails, that some of these technologies could have impacts, which we simply have no way of predicting, and they could be really, really bad, potentially. They could also be really, really good, but that's great when that happens. Um, so. I feel that at Stanford right now, we recently had our research a symposium at ICME, and we had a number of folks uh, speaking about, uh, for instance, how do you make large language models fact-based, <laughs> right? I mean, because right now they sort of go off on flights of fancy or hallucinate, as they say. Uh, or what is the implication of generative techniques on uh, the social sciences and even more broadly on society? So we have a lot of people thinking about this very, very hard right now. Uh, but I want to go back to the first factor that I said is we are in the moments after the Big Bang. And, and I think it's foolhardy to come out and make predictions mm -hmm. as to what's going to happen when you simply don't have the information. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that so much. Um, thank you. And I love, I, I love that um, the... The, the perspective you provided on how folks can think about that, right? Because I, I've not heard somebody sort of say, say you know, we're, we're milliseconds um, beyond the Big Bang in terms of thinking about what's going to happen with all of this. So um, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for, for providing that perspective, because I think that actually really sort of grounds the way that people who, who are getting um, a little um, nervous maybe about it to say, look, you know what? We've already lived through this before, right? Look, we're here. It's okay. Um, so I appreciate that very much. So thank Thank you for that. Um, so Jasmine and Sanjay, I, I want to thank you both for taking time um, out of your day to uh, to join us on the program and to have this conversation. Um, it uh, has been delightful and um, really, really interesting. So thank you um, for taking time uh, to spend with us. Thanks again, Annelies, to, uh, for inviting uh, me. And um, thanks, Jasmine, also for a great conversation. Agree. Agree. This has been terrific. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.